1: It is uh, entitled uh, Cultural Genocide in the Name of Counterterrorism. Um, and uh, I have the, the cover to my recently published book uh, up there on the slide, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority from Princeton University Press. And a lot of what I'm gonna talk about today is described in more detail uh, in that book. Um, I want to start, by talking about um, what is happening in the Uyghur region of China um, today. Um, I think that there's a, most people uh, attending this talk are probably aware of the situation to varying degrees because it's been covered a lot in the media, but I wanna at least provide a a thumbnail sketch and maybe for those who are less aware of what's happening um, a little more detail about, the the kind of complex of policies that the state is using against the indigenous peoples of this region. So one one thing you've probably heard about um, for sure is mass internment camps. Um, This has been kind of the most headline grabbing aspect of what's happening. There's estimates that upwards of a million Uyghurs and other uh, related ethnic groups living in this region, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, Uzbeks, and so on have been put in these camps indefinitely without any kind of due process. Um, and you've, and I, I wanna mention that uh, one thing that a lot of people do not know is that in addition to these internment camps, there's also been a significant increase in imprisonment since 2017. And there's been hundreds of thousands of people put in prison on political charges since 2017. Um, The other uh, aspect you've probably heard about through the media is mass surveillance. And and the headline-grabbing aspect of this is the high-tech, you know, cutting-edge technology that's being employed, including artificial intelligence, uh, facial recognition software, and so on. But I think what's more important is uh, the state has, uh, has put together something it calls the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which is a massive database that collates all of the data from this electronic surveillance and include, and also you can have input from human surveillance that goes into an electronic file, uh, on each individual living in the region that can be brought up with the press of a key, you know, at a security checkpoint or so on to determine somebody's loyalty to the state, somebody's, uh, perceived extremism and so on. But, um, I wanna kind of point out that those two aspects of what's happening are really the cornerstone of a complex of what I consider very destructive policies that are happening. And the camps and prisons, in conjunction with the mass surveillance essentially create a situation where those not incarcerated have no possible recourse of resistance. So any resistance can be detected by mass surveillance and result in internment or imprisonment. And so not surprisingly, this allows the state to remake this region and its people at will without resistance and create an illusion of normalcy and volunteerism. and some of the other aspects of what's happening, I think are really important because they, they kind of point to the intents of these policies. Um, so there's, there's a certain number of policies that are kind of focused on forced or you could say coerced assimilation because um, if, if you do not partake in these activities, you could end up in an internment center or prison. Um, and these include you know, the active suppression of Uyghur cultural expressions and language for outside, those outside penal institutions, particularly if they have any kind of religious significance. Um, coercive uh, mixed ethnic marriages, there's a state campaign to promote um, mixed marriages with Uyghur women. And um, because of the, the surveillance and the threat of being interned, um, turning down a hand in marriage could result in being branded as an extremist and being uh, put into some sort of incarceration. Uh, Increased mandatory Chinese language boarding schools for children, and this uh, particularly relates to those children of parents who are either interned or um, imprisoned, as well as those who take part in um, residential labor programs, which I'm gonna talk about in a second and also con- coerce per- participation in Han holiday celebrations and suppression of Uyghur holidays. At the same time, you know, all of those things have to do with trying to change the people, but there's also uh, a lot of things being done to change the terrain. So removing signs of Uyghur cultural legacy. Uh, many of you may notice this is a mazar or uh, a saint's tomb which is a a very important part of Uyghur religious practice, a picture in 2011 and picture in 2019. But this is emblematic of a lot of destruction of um, physical uh, uh, markers of of Uyghur cultural legacy. So we see the demolishing or repurposing of mosques for tourism, making them into restaurants and so on destroying religious shrines like the Mazars I showed, destroying civilian cemeteries, um, removing traditional architecture and demolishing entire Uyghur villages um, to allow for uh, redevelopment. And then finally, um, the coerced residential labor program, which you may have um, be aware of from a lot of uh, things that have been in the news recently about attempts to um, sanction companies for having Uyghur forced labor in their supply chains. And this is a, a massive program really that um, in part is connected to the internment centers, which are often referred to by the state as a re-education or vocational centers. Um, so the, those centers will funnel quote unquote graduates from their system into um, these residential factory programs, but these residential factory programs also take rural Uyghurs and other ethnic groups um, out of their villages and uh, put them in residential factories either in the Uyghur region or elsewhere in China, but they're essentially moving the population. And a recent study by a Chinese think tank talked about these programs as successful examples of reducing the demographic or the uh, population density of Uyghurs in the area. Um, And this is particularly focused on Uyghur majority populated areas and rural areas of the south of the Uyghur region. Um, Refusal to participate in these programs can essentially result in charges of extremism. Uh, Inside them, you have restricted movement, you're um, subjected to mandatory Chinese language classes and classes on uh, communist party ideology. You're forced to work in a Chinese language milieu with Han supervisors. And it frequently results in removing people from hometowns and villages, as well as from families and uh, providing another source of children for boarding schools. Um, So I characterize all of these uh, policies as, an, as a cultural genocide. And I, I use that term not to, not to engage with the contentious question of whether this should be considered a genocide under international law, but rather this is an academic term that's often used for the, for the um, destruction and removal of indigenous peoples in the context of settler co- colonialism. And I think very much that's what we're seeing happen in this case. Um, It's very similar to other attempts of settler colonial regimes to sever the ties of native people to their land, break their solidarity and destroy their identity prior to developing and settling that land. Um, So you can look at native American experience in the Americas, aboriginal experiences in Australasia, um, you know, from over, from about a hundred years ago, but it's very similar processes we're seeing now, but benefiting from advanced technologies of repression. Um, and in this sense, it's more about the territory that Uyghurs and um, other indigenous peoples in this region inhabit than it is about the people themselves. The aim is to remake this region as an integral and generic part um, of the PRC and a part of a society steeped in Han-based Han culture, um, most likely also serving as a major hub in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but I think it's important even uh, you know, if we consider this to be an act of settler colonialism and cultural genocide, um, it's not surprising that the state does not frame it that way. And in fact, you know, colonial regimes never really uh, frame um, their motivations around uh, colonial goals. You know, the idea uh, colonialism is really about material motivations: usurping land, exploiting natural resources, exploiting uh, labor. Um, but the uh, colonial regimes also have idealist justifications that serve to convince both the colonists themselves and others of the benevolent reasons for their actions. And um, I think this is particularly true when we're talking about settler colonialism, which, which almost always requires kind of the genocidal destruction and removal of indigenous peoples. And in that context, this justification also must dehumanize those who must be destroyed and removed. So in the 19th and early 20th century, of course, Uh, European colonialism uh, used the idea of the civilizing mission for uh, making sense of what they were doing. Uh, Destroying indigenous peoples was reframed as civilizing savages uh, done in the interest of course of those who were being destroyed and in the name of progress. And I think in this case, what we're seeing is uh, extremism and terrorism serving as similar dehumanizing markers Um, that kind of justify this idea that that the state is destroying indigenous culture in the interest of the indigenous people to make uh, them better people to make them human again and to uh, help make society more secure and safe. So, you know, there's a famous quote from uh, the director of the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania from the turn of the uh, 19th to the 20th century who said, the, the purpose of the school was to kill the Indian in, in the person to save the man. And I think really in, in a very parallel way, the Chinese state frames what it's doing is killing the Uyghur in these people or the Turkic Muslim and uh, saving uh, the person, making them human again. So you, you can see where uh, in many ways extremism, extremist terrorist has replaced uh, the marker of savages and um, de-radicalization has replaced um, the idea of civilizing. So um, for the rest of my talk, I wanna talk about how this has come about that the savages of 19th and early 20th century colonialism have turned into the terrorists of 21st century uh, colonialism and in, in, at least uh, in the context of Chinese colonialism of the Uyghur region. Um, and I think it, I think you have to talk about this both in terms of global processes and local processes. Uh, some aspects of this is about uh, things that have happened in the world in the last 20 years, and some of it is about what's happened specifically in China and in the Uyghur region. So first of all, globally, the global war on terror is a very big part of this. Uh, after September 11th, 2001, the label of terrorist took on a new meaning. Um, the US government uh, made, portrayed terrorist as evil and danger incarnate and essentially used that as a justification uh, to go around all kinds of global norms of human rights, of uh, internationally accepted rules of combat between states. Um, and, and yet, the the problem with with uh doing that beyond um just just the question of the humaneness of it uh was also that there remained no internationally accepted definition of what a terrorist was so this this provided a very kind of flexible means of dehumanizing any kind of um any kind of population that um uh, a state might want to dehumanize and um attack violently um And this was used very frequently in terms of political opponents. And because the global war on terror really kind of redefined the idea of terrorism, which has a long history as uh, specifically Islamic terrorism, It also served as a means that could be used to racially profile entire Muslim populations, especially in non-Muslim majority states. And, And I would argue that's very much what happened to the Uyghurs over the last 20 years. But part of the reason um, that happened was also about things that were happening in the People's Republic of China, and interestingly, also in the Soviet Union. So um, at the beginning of the 1990s, uh, when the Soviet Union fell, uh, the People's Republic of China became very concerned. It worried about China falling as well. You know, uh, in the West, there are all these calls of, oh, this is the end of communism. This is the beginning of... uh, you know, the end of history. Um, And uh, the Chinese government, I think, wrongly kind of diagnosed the problem of the Soviet Union as being ethnic self-determination. And they thought um, they had to make sure to prevent any kind of movements for ethnic self-determination, particularly in Tibet and the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region, which the Uyghurs consider their homeland, uh, to maybe a little lesser extent in Mongolia. Um, But simultaneously for Uyghurs who lived on the border with the Soviet Union, had connections, um, had long history of connections with the Soviet Union, uh, had family members who were citizens of the Soviet Union. Uh, This also uh, presented um, kind of uh, an alternative future to them. They, They looked at the emerging states in Central Asia and said, well, potentially we could have um, Independence someday, we could have our own Uyghur state. Um, and this led to increasing kind of tension in the region between the state and um, the ethnic population, the native population. So um, the state uh, established several strike hard campaigns that targeted Uyghurs suspected of disloyalty to the state, which it framed as separatism. And uh, this, this targeted both intellectuals, secular intellectuals that were assumed to be nationalists, you know, uh, by the things they wrote or musicians who sang about certain things. Um, but it also included um, a real focus on uh, those Uyghurs who expressed religiosity publicly. Um, and, you know, this arguably created a, a real standoff between Uyghurs and the state. You know, there are lots of people being arrested frequently, um, people executed on, on um, charges of separatism and so on. And uh, predictably, that led to also violent resistance from Uyghurs, particularly against um, the police and against um, state uh, security organs. Um, now, most of that violence uh, was was downplayed by the state, which wanted to kind of show that everything was, was very good in this region and people were content. Um, but that suddenly changed after 9-11. Um, so shortly after September 11th, uh, the PRC issues a series of white papers, <coughs> excuse me, essentially policy papers that claim it faces a serious terrorist threat from Uyghurs that is linked to Osama bin Laden. Uh, And it names a litany of Uyghur diaspora organizations in Europe, Central Asia, and Turkey as being part of this terrorist network, uh, which it gives this very nebulous name of the Eastern Turkestan Terrorist Forces. And uh, these documents also include a list of 200 violent instances that took place in the Uyghur region during the 1990s uh, that the state says were um, perpetrated by this amorphous terrorist network. Now, a lot of these incidences are not. are not at all like terrorism. A lot of them are protests that turned violent when they were cracked down by the police. Um, some of them are attacks against the police, which may not have been politically motivated at all. Um, and there's, you know, uh, a couple things, there were two bus bombings that, you know, uh, by my definition of terrorism anyways, could be considered terrorist acts. Um, but even then it wasn't clear that there was any political agenda behind it or, Um, there was no evidence that there was an organized Uyghur militant resistance um, at all in the region. So uh, initially, I think the international community really shrugged off this. The the PRC had a a real concerted lobbying campaign uh, to try to push this, to try to get Uyghurs kind of categorized as part of the enemies in the global war on terror. Um, The U.S., uh, many U.S. officials um, uh, in the first year after 9-11, you know, uh, directly kind of confronted this question, said, no, the problem in in this region is not terrorism, it's human rights. But then that suddenly changes in the summer of 2002, where the U.S. State Department recognizes one group uh, that's talked about in the Chinese documents, a group called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, or ETIM, as a terrorist organization with linked with Al-Qaeda. And the US puts this, this group on the terrorism exclusion list and helps China get it uh, recognized on the UN Security Council's consolidated list of terrorist organizations. Um, ominously, the State Department uh, goes beyond the Chinese documents And the State Department suggests that this group is responsible for all 200 acts of violence that the Chinese government talks about in its documents. While the Chinese government had actually said that that was the work of various groups working in in concert. Um, So a lot of my research over the last few years has been trying to find out um, the reality behind this group. When, when When the US recognized this group as a terrorist group, uh, I had never heard of them, and nobody I knew uh, studying Uyghurs had ever heard of them. Um, and I, I was, uh, I've was i done a lot of research on it, and I've, I've come up with some ideas about what is what ETIM is, at least in theory. Um, and it, it's not really a single organization, but it's a couple small groups on the margins of uh, the global jihadist movement that's been active for 20-plus years now. Um, And uh, the first group, which never called itself ETIM and the group that really the Chinese government was talking about, uh, was a group established by this guy, Hassan Massoum, who left the Uyghur homeland in 1997. He was a a religious nationalist who wanted to start um, an insurgency to uh, liberate his homeland. Uh, And so he, he eventually gets to Afghanistan and he has a very small group of followers, um, but he he never really realizes anything in terms of um, a militant organization. Uh, he does not, there's no evidence that he has any ties with uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, uh, in fact, um, stories um, I've been told by people who were in the region at the time was that there was a lot of tension between Al-Qaeda and um, this guy because um, they, this guy was interested in um, the question of uh, the Uyghur homeland and independence and uh, was not interested in global jihad and al-Qaeda, of course, the opposite. Um, And in fact, there's lots of evidence that the Taliban essentially kept this group in check at China's behest to make sure it um, could not pose a threat to China. Um, And there's no evidence that this group ever carried out any violence anywhere, let alone the 200 Uh, violent acts most of which happened before this group was ever formed. Um, The organization itself basically dies uh, with the death of the leader uh, at the hands of the Pakistan military in 2003 when he flees Afghanistan Um, and a year before that he calls into Radio Free Asia condemning the 9-11 attacks and and asserting that uh, he and any of his colleagues Um, do not have any ties with al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Um, However, there is a group that emerges later um, called the Turkestan Islamic Party, uh, which essentially has been active since 2008. And uh, one of the things that's important to note is that this this ETIM group, which essentially ceases to exist in um, 2003, terrorist analysts abroad um, continue to write about it. They continue to spin kind of a narrative, like there is this group out there. And um, this group that uh, emerges in 2008 kind of uh, continues that tradition. So from the Chinese state's perspective, this is all ETIM. This group, um, they, they essentially, I found that their first video ever on the internet was in 2005. It's about the martyrdom of Hassan Massoon from the other group, but in fact, this group really does not have connections with uh, the history of this previous group in Afghanistan. Um, It uh, becomes known in 2008 during the Beijing Olympics because it makes several videos threatening the Olympics. And um, the the group was essentially, as far as I can tell from uh, studying their videos uh, is, was was populated by a handful of Uyghurs, you know, maybe less than 10, um, the only people who ever appear in these videos. Um, and they were likely uh, members of, you know, foreign fighting, uh, foreign fighters um, in Waziristan, different uh, battalions that were fighting uh, against the US invasion of Afghanistan, um, but they had been given, um, video uh, cameras to operate kind of a propaganda wing maybe to um, recruit Uyghurs and they continue to make videos and after the Olympics their videos actually get much more professional suggesting that they perhaps are getting support from Al-Qaeda and the Pakistan Taliban but through 2013 um, really this group is is nothing more than a video production unit and um, there's no evidence that they have any capacity to carry out any violence inside China, or that they have any, any sense of like, you know, cells inside China or followers inside China. Um, and finally, uh, one more group that's been associated with this, um, also called the Turkestan Islamic party, is um, the, uh, the manifestation of this group in Syria after 2013, Um, and this group um, actually is a larger group, but it's not really um, uh, an extension of the group in Waziristan per se. Uh, It's mostly populated by refugees who left China after uh, the 2009 Urumqi riots, which I'll talk about in a moment, and the crackdown that, that occurred after that. Um, And they were refugees who went to Turkey. And from Turkey, they were recruited uh, either just as uh, being offered a place of refuge for their families. Um, They've been known in Syria as uh, an odd example of jihadist groups because they moved with their entire families. Um, And some of them uh, that I've spoken with who were in Syria told me that they were uh, essentially convinced to go there because they thought they were training for an eventual war of liberation in their homeland. Um, But I think the most important issue about this group is they've never done anything outside of Syria. Um, There's no evidence that they um, carry out violence anywhere else. Um, And really, they're not a terrorist group as much as a mercenary group. Um, they remain one of the last uh, anti-Assad groups in Idlib, um, but there's, there's no real escape route for them um, to do anything else and um, to really be a threat to China. But this whole uh, narrative around these three groups has kind of uh, continually suggested that there was a constant threat inside the Uyghur homeland, which didn't exist. Um, And the impact of that, it's important to look at different periods. So um, initially it really had very little impact except uh, discursively. Um, You know, most of (coughs) the Chinese policy uh, from 2002 to 2009 in the Uyghur homeland continued as it did in the 1990s. But instead of uh, trying to track down and punish quote unquote separatists, now they were tracking down terrorists or extremists. And, um, you know, at the same time, it's important to note that the the policies in the 90s and in this period in the early 2000s were kind of a carrot and stick policies where they would try to uh, severely punish any uh, signs of disloyalty to the state while simultaneously incentivizing uh, assimilation through educational and job programs. Um, And at the same time, there was this continued drive to develop the region. Um, And uh, that began also displacing Uyghur communities. Um, And and also this massive development in the region led to um, a growing influx of Han migrants. Um, And so kind of the the amalgamation of this um, demonizing of Uyghurs as potential terrorists combined with the pressures of development and the influx of Han migrants um, led in my opinion to the 2009 riots in Urumqi, which again had nothing to do with terrorism, um, but have really, I think really served as a major turning point in the situation of Uyghurs inside China. So um, in 2009, the summer of 2009, Uh, there were several Uyghurs uh, who were killed in a factory in Southern China. These were people who had joined into these kind of incentivized assimilation uh, programs uh, to work in factories inside China. And um, they had been killed due to a rumor on the internet that Uyghur men had raped uh, Han women uh, in this particular factory. In um, following this, university, university students in Urumqi, um, mostly Uyghur, uh, started a protest um, where they were calling for justice from the state for these murders. And this is something that happens elsewhere in China frequently, but uh, in the Uyghur region, it's immediately um, suppressed and, and called either a sign of separatism or terrorism. So uh, when this, this particular protest gets suppressed violently by security organs, it essentially uh, spills into street violence, which degrades into uh, ethnic rioting really. Um, and you know, there's basically three days of ethnic violence, both Uyghur on Han and Han on Uyghur violence. And it, it has nothing to do uh, with terrorism. It's not politically, um, It's not like a premeditated, politically motivated event per se, as much as it is a spontaneous and passionate explosion from the tension of development and migration. But um, the state uh, essentially blames Uyghurs for the violence. Uh, And in particular, uh, they blame uh, rural Uyghur migrants to Urumqi from uh, the Uyghur majority south and especially those who are religious. So they kind of frame it in a terrorism discourse that this is, this is really the work of extremists. Um, and as a result, there's, a, re- there's a, a serious crackdown in the south of the Uyghur region. Um, there's uh, there's people, Lots of people just disappear. They get uh, taken away by authorities and their families never find out what happened to them. There's uh, hundreds are arrested. um, There's people executed, um, and there's increased security scrutiny throughout the region, um, beginning after after these riots and and continuing essentially to this day. Um, And uh, as a result, you start to see more and more violence um, after these riots in the south of the Uyghur region, and it's particularly between Uyghurs and law enforcement, between police and Uyghurs, between security forces and Uyghurs. Um, And uh, it's kind of state violence met with violent resistance. It it almost reminds me of what you would see in in a lot of um, places where you have structural racism, where uh, law enforcement is is basically targeting um, a minority and and the minority in in turn is, is violently turning on the police. And um, it begins this cycle of violent repression, resistance repression between law enforcement and rural Uyghurs. And of course the state continually frames this as terrorism. And um, meanwhile, the mass development of this region is is continuing and increasing, particularly in the south, the Uyghur majority areas. So in the early, early 2000s, there was a lot of infrastructure development, um, but now, there, in, in the later period, uh, in the second decade of the 2000s, we start seeing the creation of um, factory centers. We start seeing the industrialization of this southern uh, region that had been a, almost exclusively Uyghur and where the state had previously had very little uh, penetration. Um, and you see more and more violence, um, and at the same time, uh, this, this small jihadist group in Waziristan continues to make videos to kind of fuel that violence, although there's less of a sign that it, it really um, is fueling uh, the violent resistance as much as it's providing more reason for the state to apply violence against Uyghurs. Um, and this culminates in 2013-14, where you really see a couple isolated violent incidents in the region that I would term as terrorist attacks. They they focus on civilians, Um, they seem premeditated, um, and that um, kind of becomes the last straw in terms of the Chinese government's attitude towards the region and Uyghurs. And it leads to the declaration of a people's war on terror, um, in which the government, again, can particularly targets rural and religious communities um, and really mostly Uyghurs, not as much um, the other ethnic groups in the region at this time. Um, and they focus a lot on uh, public demonstrations of religiosity, clothing, um, the grooming people uh, adopt and so on. Um, and they even begin criminalizing certain aspects of Islamic practice. You know, things like getting married through an Islamic practice. Um, uh, 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 Islamic ceremony um, and other things that are done outside of the state-sponsored religious institutions. And they begin codifying how to tell what, what marks an extremist, which I think is a very ominous um, aspect of this period. And finally, um, I think this is where you see the beginnings of what's happening today in 2014, because we start seeing the infrastructure laid down for the mass targeting of the indigenous population here, um, it's when they start procuring for this, um, this integrated joint operations platform, this massive database that collates uh, electronic surveillance on individuals. They start beta testing different forms of re-education um, that can be, you know, that are framed as re- uh, de-radicalization. Um, and so, you know, they're not necessarily mass internment centers, but smaller ones or even um, day schools where people are sent um, to rehabilitate and, and uh, kind of uh, forsake their religiosity. Um, and then, you know, 2017, late 2016, early 2017, it's almost like a switch goes off and um, the state begins targeting the entire population um, and you know, seems bent on trying to uh, displace them, break their solidarity, um, and destroy their culture. And um, even though that, that happens in 2017, my research kind of shows that everything was laid down for that, the kind of infrastructure already in 2014. And the first major sign of a shift is the Um, And first there was um, arrest of several intellectuals who'd been involved over the last decade in textbook production. And the state had decided that these textbooks that had been around since 2001 were actually um, uh, essentially supporting extremism and terrorism. Um, And also uh, simultaneously, they begin attacking Uyghur Communist Party officials who um, are are referred to as two-faced officials, suggesting either that they tacitly support terrorism and extremism, have connections to this mythic ETIM, um, or they're not doing enough to oppose these things. And after that, you know, kind of brings us back to the beginning of the talk. People start disappearing. We see the construction of these mass internment centers um, and the situation has just gotten worse and worse. Um, so conclusion, conclusions, I want to say, um, you know, again, that I think the actual motivations for what happened is about um, the PRC's interest in developing this region and settling it. It's essentially a, a settler colonial agenda um, in which the indigenous population, you know, is superfluous at best and at worst an obstacle that must be removed. Um, And this particularly relates to the southern reaches of the Uyghur region that had previously been majority Uyghur. Um, And um, I have to say, though, that even though that's the motivation, I think we have to recognize that the global war on terror accelerated the state's tactics for doing this, uh, and especially, you know, as it related to attacking the indigenous populations. And we see from the beginning of GWAT this kind of logical uh, progression that goes from, uh, and actually starting in the 1990s where the state was targeting um, a limited group of Uyghurs, uh, accusing them of being nationalists, assumed to be a minority within the whole population and seeing them as an obstacle to development, reframing that uh, then as terrorists and extremists after 9-11, eventually targeting all of Islam as the roots of what makes people extremists and terrorists, and eventually uh, racially profiling the entire population and going beyond Uyghurs to also target Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, any of the uh, indigenous Turkic Muslim people of the region. Um, And I I just want to say kind of one thing about this point I mentioned earlier about Um, where justifications and motivations blend. You know, the idea that uh, the civilizing mission and European colonialism wasn't just a justification. It wasn't just an excuse. It kind of drove uh, the colonial um, agenda itself. And I think we see the same thing here where uh, essentially um, there's a lot of people involved in implementing these policies believe that they are saving Uyghurs from extremism and terrorism, saving them from themselves. Um, and the idea is that they've, they've become less than human. And the only way they can become human is to transform them, even if that includes a lot of suffering. So you know, as, as a lot of scholars of genocide talk about, you need something to dehumanize a people in order to subject them to uh, kind of like racially profiled atrocities Um, And so in this way, very much the savages of the 19th and 20th century colonialism seems to be reemerging in the discourse of terrorists and extremists in the 21st century. Uh, The aims are fundamentally the same. uh, They're colonial and ultimately uh, genocidal. Um, which is why I refer to this as cultural genocide in the name of counterterrorism. And I see it as a cautionary tale about the capacity of states for undertaking colonial projects in the 21st century. Thank you. Thank
2: you very much, Sean. That was really a very comprehensive and fascinating uh, talk. So um, now we will open up the floor to questions and comments and uh, uh, we ask you once again to use the raise hand function and to unmute your mics and, and show your video when you're ready to ask your question. Uh, before we start, well, i, I just want to uh, make a quick uh, program note that I neglected to in the introduction and that is uh, to note that this event is co-sponsored between CRIKA and the center Uh, for East Asian studies. So thank you very much to our colleagues at CEAS for co-sponsoring the event. Okay, um, any questions? So uh, uh, I wanna recognize, so also if you can't uh, uh, use the function you should, uh, or use the raise hand function, you can let me know. Uh, Yes, Yoi Herrera, please uh, go ahead.
3: Well, um, thank you, Sean, so much for this talk. It's really um, informative and um, just an important public service. So, thank, thanks a lot. Um, I had a question about the land um, and development. And what could you say a little bit more about why? I mean, um, but the, the context of my question is thinking about um, Native American land that, you know, the, the value of the land at different times, whether it was the gold rush, the trains. Minerals, etc., like that, led to a lot of pressure. So I was just wondering, was there something around 2014 that changed in terms of the value of the land, or could you say a little bit more about the why why the the land particular is so valuable?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's a couple things. It it, it really starts in the 1990s. I think you know what uh, there. One of the things is the Chinese state itself doesn't really have the capacity to do the massive development in the 90s. Um, But they start, you know, the the state's economy becomes more outward looking. Um, You know, this region had really been seen as a frontier to be contained, almost like a buffer zone to keep Western um, troublemakers out of China, um, you know, in part the Soviet Union. But then um, once the 90s uh, come about, China goes through economic uh, transformation becomes um, a production uh, powerhouse and is focused on uh, export and the Soviet Union falls and this is all these new markets um, I think they start then really seeing that they they need to develop this region and that continues through the 2000s of course I think if there's any urgency that uh, is coming about um, By 2014, that relates to Xi Jinping and his idea of the Belt and Road Initiative, which, um, you know, a lot of people I know who study Chinese government um, talk about how things like the Belt and Road Initiative um, almost become, uh, they become, for one thing, among local officials, a way to get money. You know, this massive uh, initiative that the leader has said is all important okay, we're gonna do Belt and Road things, you know, so we have the proliferation of Belt and Road institutes and Belt and Road, um, you know, think tanks and all these different things. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that is certainly part of the urgency. Um, and um, I do think that Xi Jinping, um, You know, he's also rising to party secretary at this time. And he's proven to be a very different type of leader um, than his predecessors. And he wants things done and thinks you can do them by force.
2: Okay, uh, I wanna apologize for some reason my video has stopped working, but hopefully you can all still hear me at least. Uh, This is Ted speaking. Uh, Oh wait, maybe I can start it now. Uh, Okay. uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, we also have a question next from uh, Hannah uh, Pinard. Hannah, you? Gotta... Yes, uh, here we go. Okay,
4: hey. can
2: you hear me now? Yes, yes, you can.
4: Okay, good, good, good. Um, thank you for your presentation, Professor uh, Roberts. See, you made some really profound assertions and connected them well with uh, well I- European colonialism and as well as American history and um, to kind of bring uh, the argument to to currently you know geopolitical issues and, and uh, I guess cooperation uh, cooperation and negotiations, at uh, summit level and, and at uh, international policy level. Um, and that is, uh, most recently in the Anchorage uh, meeting uh, between Secretary Blinken and the Chinese Foreign Minister, uh, there were, of course, uh, this issue was brought up, you know, as, as one of the human rights issues by Secretary Blinken. And to counter that, uh, the Chinese Foreign Minister mentioned some very valid points as well uh, related to black lives matter attacks on asian americans today and so i'm curious to see what would be your advice and recommendation to americans number one american negotiators you know within our government number two and maybe world trade organization Mm -hmm. officials in how to urge the Chinese government to, in a sense, clean their house while at the same time, hopefully, cleaning our house as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a yeah tough tough but good question. Um, yeah, I think that um, you know it's very interesting. There's a couple things going on here. Um, one is that the Chinese government, to some extent. Um, yeah, almost, um, I think, wants to say, why Why can't we do this if these other states have done it in the past? And, and it's and it's it's very odd, but you hear them say, well, what about your Native Americans, which is almost saying, well, of this course. is essentially the same thing you're doing, um, you know, which is a valid point, but of course, that's not a point that, you know, in the 21st century, we want to replicate atrocities from the 19th and early 20th century. But um, I think it is important. One, one of the things the Chinese government's also trying to do is make this about the United States and China. And, um, you know, there's they're kind of whipping up this idea that there's emergent new Cold War. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people who want to avoid a Cold War uh, are thinking that the U.S. is feeling that. And, of course, there are, I think, hawks in the U.S. who are feeling that. But I think the Chinese government wants that too, right? They want to be... Um, in a position where they are the main competitor in the world. Um, And I think that this issue should, the international community should try to divorce this from that issue. Um, And and in part for the US government, I think that means that um, they have to try to uh, kind of uh, work behind the scenes more than doing a lot of bluster, you know, and making this like a US stance per se. And, you know, for, it's my impression that the Biden administration understands this. And in fact, their foreign policy says that's what they intend to do um, in a lot of instances is they wanna work with allies and build coalitions and not, you know, be America first, you know, particularly after the last four years. Um, so I, I really think that's the, the 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 approach, but then the other thing is, I do think that the the leverage here. I mean, we have to be frank. You know, these kinds of things only the Chinese government can resolve this problem, right? You know, nobody's going to go to war to, with China over this. Um, but the it has to change from inside China, and I think the only way to leverage that kind of change is economic um, pressure, and that that. You know, it would be my hope um, that that kind of economic pressure would would impact the elite enough to say this is not in our interest to be doing this, and and to force some kind of change. Um, uh, of course, a lot of a lot of my colleagues who study Chinese government will say Xi Jinping will never let that happen, but um, I think that I think that is my feeling about um, how to go go about trying to change this behavior.
4: Yeah, if it comes to money, he can maybe be brought to the table. Um, I'm not sure. Did you see the recent, uh, I think it was three, four weeks ago, the PBS Frontline documentary called, uh, I guess, on the same subject? They had a lot of, uh, I guess, undercover video and things that had been taken on the repression.
1: Um. I don't know if I've seen that one, but I've seen, I've seen some like that and, and there has been a lot of pressure on in the international media, which I think is really really good. It's in, mm. uh, you know in, in a lot of really great journalists at a time in the. US where um, you know investigative journalism is is kind of on the decline, but it's great to see that this has been something that um, a lot of young correspondents have done a lot of great
4: work on mm. Thank yeah. you. I'll enter the link in the chat um, if you can see it on demand. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. OK, thank,
2: thank you, uh, Hannah, for your question and for the answer. OK, we have uh, several more questions in the queue. Next, I want to turn it forward to Viren uh, Murthy. Please go ahead.
0: Uh, yes, uh, thank you very much for this um, very informative th- talk. Um, and um, I guess my question um, follows up on, I think, Professor Herrera's question earlier. Um, but I wanna come back to um, the way in which you're understanding the, the, the concept of um, settler colonialism. Because mm-hmm. um, I think what's very, very interesting about this case is that um, you have a settler colonialism that, but if you look at the time in which it's happening, um, it's a region that's already inside China, ostensibly. So it's almost like the colonialism is happening again and again. Or, or how? I mean, how are we supposed to think of that, mm-hmm. um, where you're colonizing a place that's already yours in some sense? Mm-hmm. Because and so, so and so. This is where I think a kind of historical perspective um, might help, right? Because mm-hmm. we can. I mean, Xinjiang has been part of China for for a while, mm-hmm. uh, and yet the and and yet if what you're saying is correct the colonization happens or or i mean i'm not sure because you didn't talk that much about the early, it seems that the colonization is happening recently yeah. but if the, if the colonization is happening recently then how do we it's see, and it seems to be different from other kinds of colonization and and mm-hmm. so this is where your comparison with the european case was sort of interesting because there you have a civilizing mission mm-hmm. um, and here it seemed like one of the major events um, that really sparked this is the global war on terror mm-hmm. um, because at least the ideology seems to come from there so mm-hmm. what you then have is that is the global war on terror which you know I mean Ajaz Ahmed and so on say that well it's it, that whole the whole 9-11 was a kind of it was almost a gift to American imperialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was where you, 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 they could begin to develop this kind of expansive policy. But then, then the whole global war on terror seems to have been a gift to the Chinese government, in a sense, mm-hmm. because it allows them to, to have a kind of, of, of rhetoric. But it seems that that rhetoric is somewhat different from the savage, mm-hmm. uh, the savage to civilized. And, I'm, and, and this is something that we, one has to think here about the relationship between the image of the terrorist, um, mm-hmm. the image of the savage, and, and development. Mm-hmm. Should we say that the two are the same? I'm not sure if one can say the two are the same, and, and, and this is why. Because if we look at the BBC, you had a little image there, right? Where with the BBC and what's happening to the, to the Xinjiang people, and it didn't look like what happens at the end, what comes out of the end uh, at the end is just a Han Chinese, mm-hmm. but rather their version of Islam or their version of the Islamic Chinese. So, so it seems that at some level they mm-hmm. they don't they, they can't and, and they shouldn't get rid even for their own interest yeah. because there is an image of China as multicultural which is going to become more and more important uh, in the Belt and Road, once we have the Belt and Road initiative, right? And so that might be a way that might, there might be something there. I mean, because if, if we talk about, well, I was thinking, the other thing I was immediately thinking was, well, how would you convince the Chinese government that, you know, maybe what they're doing is, is wrong or something? And, and this would be even on their own ideology, they can't do cultural genocide.
1: Yeah, well, so if, if I can, because you, you have a lot of interesting ideas there. So if I can try to unpack a couple of things. So, um, first of all, it, you know, I, I was struggling with this when I wrote my book, thinking about the colonial endeavor. And um, since then, I've been looking at more, uh, some other different frameworks. I mean, one, one issue is there's really three versions of contiguous colonialism, the way I see it uh, in, in global history. Um, that are similar in, in, in modern history, let's even say. So one is um, the expansion of the US. So not not the initial American colonies, but that, what, that which started happening in the 1820s, the first Indian Removal Acts and the kind of desire to expand the American economy. And it's driven again by economy. And the other example I think of is Siberia. Um, potentially Central Asia, you know, the, the Russian colonial expansion. Um, but the, so the one thing that's very curious, particularly when you look at the Chinese example compared to the Soviet example, is the Soviet example really tried to decolonize that relationship with the revolution. Um, you know, there was this attempt to say, you know, the constitution of the Soviet Union says these national republics can secede. <coughs> it really frames these as separate, <coughs> excuse me. The Chinese government in the 50s names these autonomous regions, which seems to be essentially, um, and I think you know, there needs to be more research on this, but I think that it's very much influenced by the relationship with the Soviet Union at that time, because they have you know kind of the Soviet Union's helping them construct a, a communist state. Um, but they don't allow for the um, succession in the constitution whatsoever. And by 1959, the Chinese state uh, begins a party line that basically says this region has always, always since you know the primordial slime been part of China. So it's the, it's it's this kind of like um, they they essentially. Where the Soviets tried to manipulate the idea of you are the indigenous people, but you're also Soviet. In China, they said you are not the indigenous people, and um, more recently, they they've even um, put out all of these state. Um, I mean, it, Chinese the Chinese Communist Party has to be the only state that puts out um, policy papers on the interpretation of history. They have you know uh, these these. Papers they've put out on on the history of this region, where they say actually these people aren't even Turkic; they're actually Chinese, but they were assimilated by Turkic peoples previously. Um, and it seems that the you know the, the the other point about the kind of um, assimilation side of this, uh, I think it's still evolving. But Xi Jinping is um, And there's there's a lot of debates among scholars looking at this problem now. It's the degree to which this has to do with Xi Jinping's general agenda for ethnic um, multiculturalism. Um, So there is actually an attempt to, um, and and some of the scholars promoting this are using the American model as an example to get rid of ethnic designations entirely. and uh, so, so even though uh, I think in, in 2014, they were kind of promoting still this idea of uh, here's the bad Uyghur, we want you to be the good Uyghur. Now, we don't want you to really be a Uyghur at all hmm. um, is where it seems to be headed. Um, uh, so I, yeah, uh, but I, I think
0: you're, I just, you're- Just quickly, how, do, how does that Uh, then lead into multiculturalism how is that are they getting rid of multiculturalism or what's the
1: yeah yeah there uh, there's there's um you know some of the scholars who are studying ethnic policy in China um are are thinking that they're potentially getting rid of um the idea of uh national you know ethnic national designations entirely and um so there's a there's a massive campaign among all the minorities to get them speaking Chinese, um, I- integrating more into um, Chinese culture, and uh, it's interesting because I think this region, the Uyghurs and others, are some of the only minorities in China that can't easily pass as Chinese. Um, you know, there's actually a racial issue, um, which also makes it very. Um, disconcerting to the degree to which they're, they're talking about um, kind of encouraging mixed marriage as well as not a way to kind of adopt Chinese culture, but maybe get rid of that racial visible difference, right? Because you you, you really can't, you know, there's always been an issue in China with Uyghurs that, um, you know, is a typical kind of colonial dilemma of you, we want you to um, assimilate but we, we're not going to accept you as equals. Um, this kind of glass ceiling of a, a colonial relationship, right? And um, when you imbue that with racial characteristics, that makes it even more complex because you have this whole discourse of passing as a Chinese. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I think uh, I, thank you for your questions there. I think they're very interesting and um, very thought provoking.
2: Okay, great, great, great exchange, great discussion. Um, next up in the queue is Hanlin uh, Tao.
5: Yeah, thank you very much for like, your talk. Very impressive. So uh, I think you mentioned a very interesting point how like the Chinese government uses this, what about rhetoric, like to justify their like atrocities down in this region. So I think Actually, like many Chinese people do accept this kind of "what aboutism" rhetoric because, like, since like uh, so you, the most Western country has those colonial history and like the racial repression history, so they think so. Now you like the Western country accused the China's Chi, Chinese government doing doing like very similar thing in like in Xinjiang region. So they think it's like maybe like hypocritical for them to accuse yeah. us for doing the same thing they, they have just done like 100 years ago like that. So, and I, I think like m- many Chinese people who accept this kind of what about rhetoric, they actually ignore what, what really happened in those regions but they just like you know, stimulate and inspired by this like uh, Chinese nationalism and like anti-American or anti-Western sentiment. Yeah. So they actually ignore like what really happens, like yeah. what is really done in this region? So I think this is really a problem for like China. Yeah.
1: And, and that's and it's really interesting because I think, um, you know, Xi Jinping is, is kind of fueling that, that kind of nationalist attitude, right? Um, and it's interesting that I think, you know, I, uh, since the administration changed in the US, I think the Chinese government's feeling more concerned about, um, you know, how the international community might relate to this because Trump was the perfect, you know, um, bookmark with Xi Jinping. You know, he was doing the same thing in America, like promoting this America First, and you know, giving wink wink to racists and uh, you know um, all kinds of autocratic kind of approaches. And I, and I think Xi Jinping is trying to do uh, a lot of the same same right now in China. And um, I think it's, it's very difficult uh, to really know what the response is, right? Because for one thing, China is such a large country. It's so diverse. And um, you know, people are always asking me, well, what do, what do regular Chinese citizens think about this? And one, since I come more from Central Asian studies, my research languages are Uyghur and Uzbek and Russian, as opposed to Chinese. I, you know, I haven't, I don't mind Weibo accounts and so on to look at this. But some of my colleagues who do, you know, try to try to track it. And I think um, as China becomes more isolated around this issue and others right now. That's that's also playing into Xi Jinping's um, kind of agenda because it, it's harder for people to get any other information than this kind of nationalist narrative. And that and that that leads to that thing too. I mentioned where sometimes I feel like uh, statements by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs seem to say like almost yes, we are doing the same thing you did to the Native Americans <laughs> and. And we should be able to because we're a superpower like you, um, and and uh, you know it's it's uh, that that that's a that's a very corrosive kind of idea that worries me very much about where the world is going, let alone you know the U.S. and China. Okay,
2: thanks. Uh, so I have a few uh, questions that have appeared in the chat uh, that I want to <laughs> on. Uh, so uh, Russell. Russell, did you want to go and ask your, your question live? Or uh, I don't know if you have. Uh... <clears throat> okay, so I, I see. So this is from Russell Zanke, And uh, he was asking about the uh, uh, the connection with Central Asia precisely. So he asked, uh, can you speak to any tactical parallels to Chinese colonial expansion? Oh no, sorry, I'm looking at the, uh, the wrong question in the chat. So Russell's question was about uh, Support from uh, the Uyghur communities in Central Asian countries, and uh, how important is it for uh, the residents, you know, in Xinjiang to have that support? Can you talk a little bit, maybe, about the relationship between uh, the Uyghurs who are, you know, in, in China, with those who are in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so forth?
1: Well, I think I I, I think for um, Uyghurs, I mean, one thing one thing that's important to know. Um, is this has been a very traumatic experience for um, Uyghurs who are not inside China. There's a lot of um, <clears throat> there's a lot of Uyghurs outside of China. A lot of people who, since 2017, just got kind of stranded. And some of these people um, were the types of Uyghurs who were were engaging with. Um, Chinese culture they you know were studied in Chinese universities um you know had aspirations to um be important in in Chinese society and um they're going through massive trauma um and I often you know hear them talk about how disappointed it is that the the Muslim majority countries everywhere are just not responding to this um you know, and they point to things that uh, Muslim countries make statements on about Islamophobia. And they keep on asking why don't um, these countries say anything about what's happening to us and our families. And um, because most of these people have have had relatives disappear and they they can't communicate with them anymore. And um, with um, Central Asia, I think, you know, uh, it's particularly disappointing, obviously, because um, these are people that they've had long history of relationships with. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's not surprising from my perspective, just because what we've seen in the last uh, two decades is the Central Asian states have become more and more beholden to um, China economically. Um, they're very much wrapped into the Belt and Road Initiative, and um, and 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 you know, and, and I know Russell knows this. You know, one of the things about Central Asia is uh, citizens are not very politically active, so um, there's not a lot of pressure on the governments to change this attitude. The the governments, you know, I think kind of want to pretend that this is not happening uh, and they wish it would just go away um, because they realize uh, the quandary it puts them in, particularly in Kazakhstan, where you have a lot of the eyewitness accounts from internment camps are ethnic Kazakhs, that the Kazakh government was actually able to get out of the internment camps and bring them back to Kazakhstan because they were actually Kazakh citizens. even though they were initially born in China and they still had family there. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's an issue that's going to just kind of fester in Kazakhstan because you have a group of Kazakhs that um, Nursultan Nazarbayev, the first president of Kazakhstan, invited to Kazakhstan to increase the um, proportion of ethnic Kazakhs in the state um, and to kind of, uh, generate a Renaissance and eth- ethnic Kazakh culture. And uh, a significant number of them came from China and those people are actively, uh, protesting what's happening in, in the Uyghur region in China. They're, um, very, very active. Um, and the Kazakh government, you know, um, can't just completely, you know, um, destroy their organizations, um, you know, because it, it also would, would, would essentially send a message that they're, they're, um, favoring the Chinese state over their, their own, um, co-nationals. But, um, I think this is going to continue to be a big problem in Kazakhstan and in Kyrgyzstan, the Kyrgyz government has not really responded much to this, which is a disappointment because it is a country where, you know, you have more, um, Kind of uh, voices uh, in the political uh, arena, and you would think that there'd be more concern about this. But um, for now, I think the Central Asian states just want to pretend this is not happening. Very interesting.
2: Okay, well, this has been a very lively discussion. So I'm going to actually extend us for a little while. We have uh, three more uh, questions in the queue. Uh, So, but can we now please try to keep it a little bit brief? Because usually we end. uh, Right now at 5:15, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, uh, take advantage of Professor Roberts's uh, time a bit here. Uh, so first, uh, Judd Kinsley, please. Uh,
6: thanks very much. Um, thanks for a really interesting talk. I, I guess maybe more like my colleague Vera and I was looking for a little bit of um, historical background. I was, I was interested in, because in, to some extent, I think the uh, the narrative that you're putting forward is one in which the Chinese state is quite reactive to violence in the region or to outside factors. I was wondering more about the role of kind of assimilation as an in kind of the Chinese Communist Party more generally, and if you can, or or you could also trace it back maybe historically earlier in the 20th century, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that assimilationist perspective that seems to, that emerges as you say, you know, in the 2000 teens as as the the overall policy of the Chinese Communist Party, but I was wondering if you might be able to put that into a certain amount of um, context, whether that's internal factional politics in the Chinese Communist Party or a larger sort of history of assimilationist policies being directed by the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang or towards towards Tibet? Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I, I've been thinking about it um, and um, I'd, I'd like to see somebody uh, either in political science or even in history kind of look at this in more depth but um to me it occurs to me that a big part of this is about nation building um so uh, i think one of the the problems that modern china has long had is kind of defining what what does it mean to be chinese right um so, you know, the Han population is, is actually extremely diverse linguistically, culturally. Um, you know, from the Benedict Anderson kind of perspective, you know, this could have ended up as multiple nations or this singular nation. And I think there's been a lot of, and, and you know, the last empire was Manchu led, it was not Han led. And so you really only have the emergence of this modern idea of the Chinese nation, post 1911. You know, is, is really after the fall of the Qing Empire, you start having this kind of idea. And um, I think it, it's 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 been kind of a contentious issue in Chinese politics from the beginning and hasn't been resolved. Um, and and that's why when I when I look at the kind of history going back to uh, I've, I've done a lot of looking at the comparison between the Soviet Union and the Chinese um, communist government with regards to how they look at at ethnic um, minorities or nationalities or whatever they want to call them. And um, it is distinctly different. Um, there, there's never been the same kind of inclusive belonging for non-Han people, um, you know, going back... Uh, uh, throughout the whole communist period. So, you know, starting in 49, arguably going back to 1911, there, there's, a, there's a bunch of different um, ideas that are thrown around about how to define uh, the Chinese nation uh, during the Republican period. But I feel like it's this unresolved issue. And Xi Jinping has kind of pulled on this idea of um, trying, to, trying to create from this multicultural model a singular nation um and you know some of the people i know who are studying there's a guy um in australia james labeled who has, has done a lot of work on this and you know the people who are following these policies see you know Sh- xinjiang is the place where this is most violently taking place and i think that the terrorism narrative helps allow that you know helps the, allow the dehumanizing uh, nature of what's being done but it's happening in Mongolia, it's happening to the Hui Muslims, it's happening um, throughout the non-Han populations, where there seems to be a sense that they want to make um, a more unified um, national culture that encompasses everyone. Um, so I don't know if that, that completely answers you on that. Uh, you know, I mean, I think At one point I wanna mention both, uh, you know, in terms of what your question was in in Viron's is that um, one of the things looking at the long array of history. So the Chinese, the Qing dynasty, which is not China, but the Manchus, uh, conquer this area in the 1750s. And for about a hundred years, they rule it uh, more as like a um, dependency. It's not really colonized. And the first time you have this kind of colonizing um, agenda is in the 1880s. Um, and um, that lasts until um, 1911. And it's kind of largely seen as a failure. And then throughout the Republican period, this area is, is kind of almost returns to like a dependency. And in fact, uh, there's a decade in the mid 20th century where um, the Soviet Union is more influential there um, than any central power in China. Um, and it very much could have ended up like the Mongolian People's Republic as like a, a Soviet satellite. Um, but um, because Mao came to power, I think that um, it was essentially became wrapped into the um, PRC instead. That is
2: very interesting to contemplate uh, what, what might have been the, uh, you know had it become more like a uh, mongolian people's republic okay uh, two more questions uh, before we call it a day uh, next up is uh, mahir mahir uh muted <laughs> can you um, all right well i'm not sure if uh if... she's, she's muted uh, yeah, I'll move oh,
6: myself.
3: You, for it. Thank you so much, Sean, for this uh, fantastic le- uh, lecture. I'm glad we met you again. I had very naive questions. Uh, in terms of this uh, United States and the China relationship now and kick back and forth, and there are several issues are going on. One is Taiwan, one is uh, uh, Uyghur genocide, and then some of them is Mongolian or some all kind of variety issues are going on in between. And today I got selected I attend one lecture, of one scholar from U.S. says that Uyghur genocide issues poisoned American public. I was shocked for that. So, <laughs> and in terms of this uh, economic economic benefits, uh, Taiwan has a superior position uh, in this negotiation between uh, United States and, uh, and um, China. Uh, what is your opinion in the future Uh the Uyghurs' issues in between? So how do you think that? Uh, I'm kind of afraid one day China, uh, one day the United States just gave up yeah. and then yeah. this kind of suck in the deep of the ocean as usual. I really mm-hmm. afraid that kind of situation. So what is your opinion? Yeah. And my second question is that recently uh, I read a paper as uh, Uzbekistan a diplomat at Supported uh, with China, that about uh, the policy on Uyghurs, and what is your what? Do, how do you think that one in the Central Asia's uh, situation? Maybe some other, someone already asked. It. Yeah, thank you so much. Sure. So naive questions. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean, I do think um, it is. It, you know, it is a, a danger. I think that it, it's really important that, um, as I mentioned, I think from. Uh, Hannah um, Pinard's question, you know, I think it's really important that this gets separated from geopolitics and is approached as a humanitarian issue. I think that, you know, part of the problem is it's it's indicative of the failure of um, the idea of um, uh, kind of global governance, right? You know, that the UN is supposed to stop mass atrocities. Unfortunately, it, I think it's fair to say that it, it's never succeeded in doing that, you know, since its establishment, which is really unfortunate because that's where it should be and, and what we've seen is, you know, the U.S. has often sidestepped its responsibility under international law because of its power at the UN. And now China is doing a similar kind of um, approach where it's it's, pump, it's it's pumping money into the UN. It's getting its position in various, uh, you know, important committees at the UN uh, to essentially make sure that it, it serves as like, you know, um, people talk about American exceptionalism. This is like Chinese exceptionalism that the UN is not going to question um, China about this, which really brings up, you know, who will. Um, and uh, geopolitically, I think it's kind of a losing, uh, battle to think that the U.S. can champion um, the cause like this. I do think that it, it needs to be a coalition of groups who say, you know, this, we can't tolerate this in the present world. Um, and I think, you know, I, I have noticed, you know, just looking at the media and the people who follow China politics, you know, you, you do get a sense that Hong Kong gets much more play than the Uyghur issue, where the Hong Kong issue is much more complicated and not as, as, as much of a humanitarian crisis. You know, it's about um, issues of governance and you know, it has a colonial history that's also tied to England. You know, it's, it's much more of a, um, I think a much more difficult uh, case to make is as a, as a humanitarian crisis Um, so yeah, I think that that's, I think it's really important that it it remains a a global crisis that, um, and I, 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 make the point in my book that, um, it really calls for, um, a lot of grassroots, um, pressure on China economically, you know, through the kind of, um, boycott, sanction, divest strategy, right? Um, And I think there is, there is increasingly some of that pressure. So, um, you know, I I would like to see that continue. And with Central Asia, you know, uh, we're seeing a lot of bad news about Uzbekistan over the last, you know, couple months, actually. Um, And it doesn't surprise me, but it's unfortunate to see, because I did see early on, there was a parliamentarian in Uzbekistan who actually brought up this issue and said, this is Something we should be looking at, um, but I'm not surprised. Um, I know certainly uh, Musyovia's government wants uh, investment from China, and um, I think increasingly China is approaching its investment and diplomacy around these issues. Um, you know, for for decades China has had the the Taiwan caveat in terms of diplomatic relations. You know, it seems increasingly about uh, Xinjiang and uh, Uyghur genocide.
2: Thank okay, you. thanks, Sean. So um, we're just going to take one more question. Uh, then we'll uh, let you rest a little bit. Uh, so, Zulmira uh, Yusuf, please. Uh, question.
7: Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, thank you, Dr. Roberts. Um, as an Uyghur who lives in here in the U.S., I appreciate Um, the doctors, Dr. Roberts and other scholars for taking the interest in this topic. Of course I also thank you everyone for um, participating and um, I thank on behalf of all Uyghur community for this. Um, I would like to ask a question that is also very unclear for Uyghur people as well. Um, In the past the Chinese government um, and the Chinese media would block all the international news that was related to Uyghurs. Um, Just like how they were will block um the social media platforms like facebook the instagram and all the other apps um but recently they've been openly sharing and talking about the topics related to Uyghur people and the issues um just like the previous cotton problem and the and m H&M and all the um isolating and the blocking the brands like h&m and nike
4: mm-hmm.
7: so i just i just would love to ask um why do you think the CCP's then on the media, like how what are what they're sharing, has changed, and how is it going to affect the future of East Turkestan or um, uh, Xinjiang?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's been some speculation, for those who you know might not be following this as closely, um, you know, they it, domestic news has not really talked about. Um, this as an international issue until recently, and um, suddenly it seems that the the Communist Party is kind of using it as a wedge um, propaganda issue. It's like uh, Han Lin said that you know a lot of people kind of agree with this uh, stance that 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 the government has come out and saying, "Hey, we're being." Um, we're being uh, attacked by the U.S. and the EU, and you know we should push back. So one of the things was that uh, a lot of you know there's a lot of these <clears throat> uh, professional or I guess corporate associations. So um, there's something called the Better Cotton Initiative that includes all of these major brands: Nike, H&M, Gap, and you know all these these companies. And they all said, you know, they put statements on their webpage, and this happened almost a year ago, where they said, We will not source cotton from the Uyghur region. We're going to be carefully watching to make sure there's no Uyghur forced labor in their supply chain. And suddenly the Chinese government, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, kind of unleashed this idea um, to boycott these companies. And they pointed to the fact that these companies are saying, um, that Uyghurs are being subjected to forced labor, and that cotton from this region is, is tainted by human rights abuses. And um, they kind of the government seems to be using this as kind of a, a leverage to push nationalist ideas and get people behind um, you know its policies against the Uyghurs. And um, uh, you know, some people who follow Chinese social media who I've seen write about this have said you know. Uh, one, one impact of that is a lot of people are like, what Uyghur issue? I didn't know there was, I didn't know there were mass human rights abuses happening. And, um, you know, there's a question as to among uh, some portion of the Chinese population, they may now um, have more information about what's happening and, and actually become more interested in finding out what actually is happening. Um, and it seems to be maybe, you know, kind of the strategy of Xi Jinping is that like a lot of uh, strong strong armed leaders, autocrats, whatever we want to call them, um, you know, they feel emboldened that um, the people will listen to the perspective that uh, he sets out. So um, it is an interesting question. I don't know what's prompting it, but it definitely seems to be kind of an escalation around this issue and also an attempt to make it more of a geopolitical issue again than a humanitarian issue. Well,
2: Sean, thank you so much, and thanks also to the audience for excellent uh, comments and discussion. And you know I wish we could all uh, be together in person, so she, Sean could hear us all applauding. A uh, very informative and uh, comprehensive account. Uh, I also want to once again thank the Center for East Asian Studies for co-sponsoring this event. And uh, with this, uh, and I also I want to apologize to those whose questions I was not able to get to, but we've already gone a good uh, 20 minutes over our usual time. Uh, So uh, we really appreciate the the
1: great talk and the wonderful discussion. Uh, Best to all and hope to see you at a future KRIGA event.